my case it's morning. I would like to start this podcast for our lecture Cognitive Neuroscience with a podcast about motivation. Actually, it's about food. Wouldn't it be great to eat yourself smart? Like, let's have a delicious dinner instead of studying for the exam. Well, I think that would be a great motivation to even eat something really disgusting for most of you. So, in the lecture Cognitive Neuroscience, our first chapter is about motivation. But in reality, we only talk about the motivation to eat and a little bit about the motivation to drink. So, let's talk about food in this podcast. Simply because I like food and I like cooking and I like talking about food. Eating is now more than ever a lifestyle decision for many of us. Some of us are carnivores, others do a ketogenic diet, some are vegetarian and others follow a vegan diet. Some refrain from dairy products, others eat fish but no meat, that is then called pescatarians. And maybe you have heard about flexitarians, they eat mainly vegetarian but sometimes also everything. There are a lot of myths out there that motivate us to choose one of these diets. That's rather abstract motivation, by the way. Um, a particular diet might be said to be healthier, let us lose weight, make us smarter, more beautiful or whatsoever. The truth is actually that unless you have some medical condition preventing you from doing so, a well-balanced diet is the best thing you can do to your body and mind. But that is not fancy or extraordinary. So maybe one big motivation to choose a particular diet is also to demonstrate lifestyle. I'm sure you have heard about brain food, right? This concept is often used as a marketing ploy for concentrated supplement. In reality, there are only four components of food that do have proven effects on your brain. Now you for sure want to know what they are. So the first one is fatty acids. In Iceland it's the good old lisi. Or just eating fat fish like lax or um, blikja is also very fat. Then the second thing are antioxidants that are usually certain vitamins like vitamin C. The third thing are amino acids. Um, these are those substances that you find in proteins, be it animal or non-animal protein. And fourth, and this is probably the most surprising thing for you, the believe it or not, but glucose has an effect on your brain. This is just sugar in its most basic form after food is broken down in your body. So your brain likes and needs sugar. So these four provide energy, strengthen neural connections and block destructive free radicals from you include when, when you include them into your diet. Um, of course you can take supplemental vitamins and fatty acids to increase the amounts you're getting, but food itself is really the best way to get these. So let's go back to sugar. Well, if the brain loves sugar, how does the ketogenic diet work? 
I'm convinced you all know this, but just to be sure, the ketogenic diet is composed of 80 to 90% fat and provides adequate protein, but only limited carbohydrates. I actually thought this can't work because people will include that minimum amount of carbs to make their brain happy. However, not only the brain, but also your muscles love carbs. So the carbs that will be ultimately consumed before having the chance to pass the blood brain barrier. So you eat maybe some carbs and it will never end up in your brain because your muscles all get it. So the result is your brain is deprived of energy. And that is why many people are very tired and have troubles with memory and concentration when they are on a low carb or ketogenic diet. So whatever you learn in this podcast, do not go for keto before the exam or before any exam. So, but how can the brain work at all if it needs sugar? In fact, the ketogenic diet was originally developed to mimic biochemical changes associated with starvation or periods of limited food availability. In a normal metabolism, carbohydrates contained in food are converted into glucose, which is the body's preferred substrate for energy production. Under some circumstances, like fasting, glucose is not available because the diet contains insufficient amounts of carbohydrates to meet the metabolic needs. Consequently, fatty acid oxidation becomes favored. And this is, for me, the surprising thing. Now the liver converts fat into fatty acids and ketone bodies that serve as an efficient alternative fuel for brain cells. So this conversion leads to the synthesis of three different ketone bodies with fancy names. Uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce them. Although fatty acids cannot cross the blood-brain barrier, these three types of ketone bodies can enter the brain and can serve as an energy source. But you might still feel tired and have problems with concentration because glucose just works a lot better for the brain. Mm, so what, what, is, what is the whole thing about this ketogenic diet? So ketogenic diets have been developed to treat epileptic children in 1921. Um, however, the 2003 Cochrane Review um, on the ketogenic diet for epilepsy concluded that although the diet is a treatment option for patients with difficult epilepsy, so those taking multiple anti-epileptic drugs and nothing is helping and they still have seizures, so although it's an option for those patients, there is no reliable evidence for um, uh, so-called randomized controlled trials to support that this diet um, could be generally used in people with epilepsy. And the diet has serious side effects, as you might know. I mean, if you take anti-epileptic medication, you might feel tired and have problems with memory and so on. And with the ketogenic diet, you have the same problems. And after all, a lot of fat is also not particularly good for your blood, your body. A high cholesterol actually puts you at risk for stroke, for example. So you might get rid of your epilepsy and maybe you're overweight, but then you are at risk for stroke. So let's go back to brain food once more. Brain food is usually associated with neurological or cognitive effects. Most things that you hear or read are just too good to be true. For example, broccoli. Uh, I love broccoli. I was fighting with my sister over broccoli. We both loved it. 
We still love it. So broccoli is said to improve memory and strengthen cognitive abilities. But if you eat more broccoli, you won't magically develop an eidetic memory or become a super genius. If you hear claims that this or that food will have this or that effect, do some research before assuming the information is true. When I say do some research, I do not mean Google it, because you will always find on the internet pages that are in favor or against a specific statement. I always recommend that you go to PubMed, Google it, you will find it. And that's like a medical library for evidence um, that you can trust. Um, many claims are actually based on facts that were blown out of proportion. For example, um, it was pointed out that Turkey, um, which contains tryptophan, is said to put people to sleep or make them very tired. The reality is that tryptophan can make you tired. You can also buy it as a supplement and take it for your sleep. But other nutrients in Turkey stop the tryptophan from having an effect on you. So any tiredness you feel after having eaten a lot of turkey may just be due to overeating. Okay, um, talking about brain food, we should also talk about mood food. Let's turn to our last question for today. Can we eat ourselves happy? I mean, consider the situation, um, maybe you have a terrible heartache or you just failed on an exam. I hope that will not happen in this, in this course, but let's stress the example of having failed the exam. So some people tend to confide eating in such a situation. Others just stop eating at all. Um, well, at some point, a friend of mine tried to cheer me up by giving me chocolate. So what else? What else is a cheering me up food? Ice cream, maybe? Um, another friend of mine said she would always eat lots of pudding if she was sad. So these are all sweet dishes. Is it maybe the sugar that leverages our mood? Or is it the sugar maybe just increasing the energy in the brain such that we get on a higher level of mental abilities and then we can oversee the situation from a higher level. Well, I actually do think that this could be part of the story. So you have more energy and then you can think better. Um, some of you might also have heard about neurotransmitters in chocolate, but the truth is the amounts of like L-tryptophan in chocolate, which can be converted to serotonin, which is the happy neurotransmitter, so this amount in chocolate is rather small. You should actually better eat dried fish if you want to boost your serotonin levels. So wow, that would be funny if you go to your friend and like, oh, I'm too far, I've lost, uh, sorry, failed the exam. And then your friend says, oh, poor you, here you have some heart fisker. Um, let's try that next time when we have to console some dear friend. So what is really the truth about chocolate and mood? So first of all, to most people, the combination of sugar and fat is just pleasant. It tastes good. And then many people are concerned about a healthy diet and their weight. So chocolate often has the psychological connotation of being special. It's a bit forbidden. You shouldn't eat it. And then there is this very bad situation when you just say, Today I will make an exception. Today I do something good to myself and today I will have chocolate. 
and doing yourself something good makes you feel a bit happier. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy also. And it could be as well hard whisker if you prefer that over chocolate. Your brain doesn't really mind. So that's it for today. Um, I thank you so much for listening. This was Yvonne and the podcast for the Cognitive Neuroscience Lecture. I hope you stay tuned. Next time we will talk about sex and the brain. Bye.